Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 8th, a Friday, 2022. Been doing a lot of shows on the United States, been rather parochial, so we're going to Look farther afield today. We're going to Afghanistan. When you look at the headlines about Afghanistan today, uh, they're not surprising. In the Jerusalem Post, there's a piece about the UN rights body seeking a reversal of Taliban policies on making women, quote unquote, invisible. Lots of other pieces, something from The Guardian about Afghan clerics. Um ending uh, with silence on education for girls. Uh, Of course, there's the inevitable Afghan quake, which pops up from time to time, doesn't seem to have much effect on us in the West. And then the classic NPR piece about depleted dining rugs, a reminder of hunger and loss. Most of us don't know very much about Afghanistan. I personally have never been there. I'd love to have gone, but it's a hard place to go now. It's a country which is incredibly obscure and yet been very central uh, in the history of the world over the last 50 years. We know, of course, of the American invasion of Afghanistan, but there was another invasion, the Russian invasion, the Soviet invasion. And we're going to be talking about that today with uh, Elizabeth Leek. She's the author of Afghan Crucible, the Soviet invasion and the making of modern Afghanistan, and she's joining us from Cambridge in the UK. Um, Elizabeth, the making of the modern Afghanistan, is there some irony there? Is is Afghanistan in any way a modern place? And was the consequence of the Soviet invasion modernity in some way? So the war of the 1980s in Afghanistan, um, I actually frame as a war about Afghan modernity. Um, And I think one of the things that I was really eager to look at in the book is this question that you ask. Um, Afghanistan certainly has been a modern state, you know, historically speaking. And I think kind of it's it's a modern state in a very evolving form. Obviously, a lot has changed um, under Taliban rule since last year. But I think one of the things that's really important to think about is how so many, I suppose, kind of Afghan elites and intellectuals from across the political spectrum uh, have been, you know, have imagined and have kind of pursued Afghan statehood and Afghan nationhood um, in very ambitious ways. Um, and we see this across the 20th century. And I think we see this in the 21st century as well. Um, so I guess, so yes, I think, I think it is important to take seriously the idea of Afghan modernism or the idea of an Afghan modern state, even if I think, you know, even given sort of the national, regional, international circumstances, um, kind of what that actually means in practice has often fallen short. Elizabeth, let's go back to this Soviet invasion. Uh, Most of the people watching and listening to this are not going to be that familiar with what exactly happened with this Soviet invasion. Who invaded and why? When was it? Yeah, so the Soviet, um, the Soviet Union, in the context of the global Cold War, so the sort of worldwide uh, kind of competition between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet, uh, the Soviet Politburo decided to send an armed forces into Afghanistan 
on the 24th of December in 1979, or should say that's the date at which the invasion of Afghanistan began. It would go on to last up until February 1989, when the last Soviet troops withdrew from Afghanistan. Um, but the Soviet invasion is part of a kind of a much more complicated and really messy story that takes place in Afghanistan in the late 1970s and up through the 1980s, 1990s, and up through today, really. Um, and the Soviet invasion actually took place as a consequence of a coup that took place in Afghanistan over a year earlier in April 1978. So in April 1978, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, um, a self-professed communist party, uh, very suddenly and surprisingly came to power through a really bloody military-led coup um, in Afghanistan. And so the PDPA immediately declared that Afghanistan was going to undergo effectively a socialist revolution and pledged to fundamentally reshaping Afghanistan's politics, its society, its economy, etc. So the PDPA tried to put in place, you know, some extremely wide-ranging reforms, so land reform, reforms to education, to the role of women, um, etc. But the ways that the PDP actually went about doing so were really problematic. The PDP was hugely reliant on the use of violence. Um, and it also, the party tried to push forward a lot of these reforms way too quickly. This in turn effectively sparked a civil war in the country. Um, and it was sort of in this context of civil war really growing in Afghanistan that the Soviets decided to intervene to support their local communist allies. We did a show last year, uh, actually in August 2020, with the Princeton historian Harold James, comparing uh, the current moment back then, I guess, in the United States with the dying days of the Soviet Union. What does the invasion of Brezhnev's invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, what does it tell us about the dying days of the Soviet Union, about a, a decrepit out-of-touch empire? Did they have any idea of what they were getting involved in? So the, what's really interesting in the Afghan case, and I do think you see this sort of more widely, you know, across this sort of Soviet policy towards the so-called third world, was that there were some real disconnects um, in terms of the ways that different Soviet leaders and elites were thinking about, about kind of the question of invasion or Soviet support uh, for socialist and communist parties across the world. Um, and you know, it, within, I suppose, kind of the highest realms of the Soviet Politburo, I think there was a sense of disconnect in terms of um, the Politburo really saw kind of the Soviet Union as having been successful in terms of supporting sort of third world liberation movements, particularly in Africa. So, for example, Angola and Ethiopia earlier in the 1970s. Um, in contrast, then. I think the thinking in some of the other Soviet departments, so within the KGB, for example, or within the international department, the, the perspective there was much more mixed. And I think there were some real questions in those departments, um, certainly about the nature of Afghan communism. There were a lot of questions as to whether or not, you know, this, the PDPA, you know, would tell, you know, by the late, you know, by late 1978, was telling everybody that they were communist, in effect. Um, but members of the KGB and the international department back in Moscow had real questions about this, as well as about the ability of this party to actually put in place its reforms. And to what extent, Elizabeth, did, and, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong, this really botched, catastrophic war from the Soviet point of view of this invasion, to what extent did it 
reflect the dysfunctionality of um, of the Soviet uh, of the Soviet system. Uh, you you say in your book uh, that uh, when Marshal Ogarkov was informed of the Kremlin's decision to invade Afghanistan just two weeks before his forces were due to launch the offensive. Uh, he was. He said this wasn't practical. It wasn't possible um, with with eighty five thousand troops in two weeks. He was told he had no choice uh, but to accept the directive. Was this just the the perfect storm from the Soviet point of view of an absurdity of invading another country without having any idea really of the challenges, the political and military pitfalls, and the dysfunctionality of the Soviet system? So, I mean, yeah, I think there was, there was definitely some dysfunction in terms of a lot of kind of top-down dictates being issued um, to various Soviet officials, both in kind of in the military um, and amongst kind of civilian officials as well. So there's, I guess there is that sort of sense of hubris um, in terms of kind of the decision-making that was being undertaken by the Politburo in particular and, and the debates they were having about Afghanistan. But I think one of the things that really ended up sort of I guess, selling the Soviet project or vision short in Afghanistan as well was a kind of a loss or lack of institutional knowledge, right? So if we think about kind of the Soviet Union's older history, and if we think about the older history of things like the International Department and its predecessors, you know, there were earlier generations of Soviet, you know, Soviet officials and Soviet, you know, Soviet civilians who had really vast experience of being sent abroad to help effectively state build locally, to help build infrastructures, to help build institutions, um, and to help kind of local governments to sort of develop a sense of identity. Um, but a lot of that, you know, most of those sorts of officials and that sort of Soviet historical experience had effectively died off by the late 1970s and early 1980s. So within the Soviet kind of Politburo and kind of broader Soviet infrastructures of the time, there wasn't that institutional memory. So. In that respect, because, it, you know, especially if you look at the Soviets who fought on the ground um, in Afghanistan, many of them were very young um, and had very little sort of kind of international experience. And so they had, you know, and that meant they didn't necessarily have a lot of perspective to bring to bear. Yeah, I mean, Elizabeth, essentially, this was the first war in which most young Soviet boys would have been in war since the Second World War, right? Um, um, <laughs> this is probably getting slightly outside of my. I'm, I'm but not I, I'm assuming that the, 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 the kind of the kids that were that that went from school to Afghanistan, uh, I mean, their fathers might have fought in the first in the Second mm-hmm. World War, but there was nothing in between. I mean, there wasn't a lot of the, 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 there was no Soviet presence in Korea or Vietnam. I mean, there would definitely have been Soviet advisors and officials, but not nothing near. Right, the or in Africa. So, 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 so the Soviets had done a pretty good job of keeping out of wars until 1979, uh, which mm. I guess reflects well on them. C- certainly compared to the Americans, who were embroiled in both Korea and Vietnam, both but certainly Vietnam catastrophically. How catastrophic, from a military and financial point of view, was the Soviet war in Afghanistan? How a bad a beating? did the Russians get? So I think one of the things that's really important, and I'd like to sort of take a step back from that question, is that I think one of the things that's really important to recognize is that when the Soviets entered Afghanistan in December 1979, they didn't necessarily see themselves as entering a war or necessarily 
a war zone per se. I mean, I think one of the things I'm really keen to emphasize in my book, Afghan Crucible, is that actually state building is a really huge part of the Soviet endeavor in 1980s Afghanistan. So yes, there is this military component, but there's also this really huge and really wide ranging attempt by Soviet officials to work with their Afghan counterparts to build institutions, to rebuild the Afghan economy, um, to rebuild its political institutions and, and that. So it's a much more complicated history in that respect. Militarily speaking, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say the Soviets really lost. I mean, there were certainly the Soviet, I guess the Soviets and their Afghan allies effectively fell into a, into a military impasse in fighting the Afghan resistance, but they weren't, you know, they weren't trounced on the battlefield per se. Um, and that's a point I think that kind of later Russian general staff reflections on the war made clear. Certainly, yes, the Soviet army was not prepared for the sorts of I suppose, battlefield tactics that took place within Afghanistan, which is much more kind of, you know, fighting, I guess, an insurgency and kind of much more kind of skirmishing and that rather than sort of big land-based battles, like I suppose, like we would see during the Second World War. But, but um, from an Afghan point of view, this certainly triggered um, a, a consciousness of resistance against foreign aggressor it was a critically important event wasn't it yes so the soviets really actually entered a country that i would say was already at war with itself i mean the civil war um the, the civil war in afghanistan was really alive and well from the, from late 1978 so more than a year before the soviets intervened and that was really as a consequence of decision making and policies undertaken by the afghan socialists the pdpa rather than the soviet union and what, in terms of conceptualizing this civil war, you, you obviously know a huge amount about this, but if you took a step back and, and think of it in broader terms, uh, was it a civil war essentially between, shall we call them modernizers, state builders, and perhaps uh, the descendants of the Taliban? Or is that simply no. inaccurate? I Yeah, I would say that's, that's simplistic and inaccurate. Um, and this is one of the points I'm really keen to make in this book is that actually what, you know, and this is the reason I frame the book and the, and the war, the civil war of the 1980s as a battle over Afghan modernity. Um, I think what you see from looking at not only the Afghan socialists, but all of the different groups that emerged to fight against the socialists is that there were many different visions of what an Afghan, a modern Afghanistan could and should look like. And the different resistance groups each had their own visions of that. So I think it's a really, so it's a really complicated history, as you say. But for example, if we think about kind of, you know, this wide coterie of Afghan resistance groups and political parties that emerge in the late 1970s and 1980s, they're fighting for a whole host of different political solutions for Afghanistan. So some are fighting for the return of Afghanistan's king, uh, Zahir Shah, who was overthrown in 1973. Some are, some are fighting for kind of the return of parliamentary democracy. And then, of course, some are fighting, you know, for kind of other forms of liberalized modern, modernization, kind of much more along the lines of, I guess, kind of political systems like we'd see in the United States. Um, and then some do see kind of the solutions to Afghanistan sort of political stagnancy, as they see it, in terms of Islam and political Islam. Um, but I think one of the things that's really important to recognize is the ways that the Afghan resistance parties of the late 1970s and 1980s, the ways that they're framing and talking about Islam as a political force 
is really very different from the way that the Taliban does in the 1990s. Let's do a counterfactual, Elizabeth. Had there not been an invasion, any guesses about what, if of course there hadn't been an invasion, I assume that we never would have got the Taliban and bin Laden. I mean, what kind of history conceivably, I mean, I know it's a slightly absurd question, but what kind of state or lack of state would Afghanistan be in 2022? Are there equivalents? Pakistan, for example, uh, I mean, Iran is obviously a different kind of country. When you look at its neighborhood, it's bordered by Pakistan, uh, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, both post-Soviet states. Um, would Pakistan be an equivalent? What, 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 what country perhaps would be an equivalent had there not been these catastrophic foreign wars? Well, I mean, I guess it's really hard. I, I really, I don't have a great answer to that. I mean, I think it's really hard to say since, as I said, the Soviets intervened in a country that was already at war with itself. So I think, you know, it's really hard to say so sort of militarily what would have occurred or if, you know, if we think about sort of the divisions that occur between kind of the Afghan socialists on one hand, the resistance groups on on the on the other side, which would have, I suppose, raised well, let me let me game. rephrase the question because I always okay. sense with academics like you, there's a kind of sub sub conversation going on. What would you ideally like to have happened had the Soviets not invaded? Uh, could Afghanistan have been built into a coherent, centralized, modernizing state? Could could these people have turned Afghanistan into Denmark or Massachusetts? <laughs> I mean. I don't like to draw direct comparisons, but I mean, I think one of the things that's really important is if, if we take a longer look at Afghanistan's 20th century history, you know, and particularly around developments from the mid 1960s onwards, I mean, Afghanistan certainly was well on its way towards building a modern, a modern state. Um, you know, we can see this with the constitutional period and the creation of an Afghan, you know, a really vibrant Afghan constitution in the 1960s. Um, what does that as mean, well a as, vibrant constitution? Sounds rather vulgar. I don't understand what that means. So, I mean, you know, so in 1964, Afghanistan uh, passes, you know, passes a constitution, which actually then in the 21st century serves as kind of one of the key prototypes uh, for, for, the, for, uh, for Afghanistan's constitution um, during, during the American occupation. But it, so the, the constitution that's passed is extremely wide ranging. So in terms of setting up Afghanistan's political infrastructures, its economic infrastructures, for thinking about the rights and responsibilities of Afghan citizens, for thinking about kind of Afghanistan's national language as its national flag, you know, thinking about its borders, um, the potential role of, of Afghanistan's ethnic and or religious minorities. And so, I mean, it's it's a very modern document. It's always easy to write constitutions. It's quite another thing to actually implement them. Are there countries which are equivalent to Afghanistan in terms of the building of a modern state? What models, perhaps in East Asia, I don't know, Korea, what, what, what would be an equivalent that you could look at and say, this is what Afghanistan could have been had it not been for these foreign invasions? I mean, I don't, I, I can't, it's like, I really, as a historian, I, I'm just, I really avoid trying to counterfactuals like this because it's, re, it's just, it's really impossible to say. I mean, I don't. Okay, well, let's move on yeah. to uh, the Russians. Uh, there's obviously lots of comparisons between Brezhnev's invasion of, um, uh, of Afghanistan and Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I know you're going over to the uh, the Tufts, uh, the, the Fletcher School, uh, you're starting there next year. I did an interview with Chris Miller from Fletcher last week on what the Russians are up to in Ukraine. 
Are there any, when you look at what Putin has done in Ukraine, are there any equivalents between that and Brezhnev's seeming, well, it seems like in some ways Putin's disastrous invasion of Ukraine and certainly Brezhnev's disastrous invasion of of Afghanistan, or, or are those not equivalent either? I think there, it's really quite, it's a really complicated comparison to make. I mean, I think one of the things that really differentiates the two, the two invasions is firstly, you know, the Soviet Union, you know, Brezhnev upon, you know, in the context of invading Afghanistan, he did so in terms of invading an allied country and was able to cite treaties of friendship between Afghanistan and the Soviet Union um, to justify to justify the invasion. Of course, those treaties and the kind of that justification was immediately attacked in the international arena, not only by the United States, but at a whole host of countries, um, particularly at the UN General Assembly. But I guess that sort of, it, there's a different history of relations, uh, you know, immediate history of relations between the Soviet Union and Afghanistan in terms of those alliances. Um, and I think the Cold War also provides a, a rather different context as well. I mean, there's, this, there's an ideological side to to Brezhnev's decision to invade invade Afghanistan, which is about the preservation and you know the preservation and expansion of socialism in a Cold War context, which again makes it different different from Ukraine. I guess at this you know kind of at this juncture moment in time, you know it's hard to say whether I guess whether the Russians under Putin will sort of pursue sort of I guess effectively state building in the same way in conquered territories that they did in Afghanistan. Um, I think it's a little too early in the conflict to say that, but I think the the circumstances are definitely are definitely a bit different. Of course, ultimately, most Americans, when they think of Afghanistan, if they know anything, they know about the Taliban um, who emerged. A BBC ask, "Who are the Taliban?" Uh, Elizabeth, would it be fair to say that we we wouldn't have got the Taliban without the Russian invasion of Afghanistan? Yes and no, which is, you know, I realize not a helpful answer. I mean, yes, in that, I guess the kind of the Soviet invasion provides a broader context. But I guess if we're thinking about how and why is it that the Taliban is a party that comes to power, um, that links much more, I suppose, to kind of regional dynamics um, and ultimately, I guess, kind of to U.S. U.S. backing of those regional dynamics as well. So, I mean, the role of Pakistan in particular is absolutely fundamental right. to understanding the rise, rise of the Taliban. Um, and I guess... In that respect, I mean, Pakistan plays such a massive role too during the Soviet invasion um, of Afghanistan, not only in terms of hosting different Afghan resistance groups, but also, you know, tailoring its aid and support to very specific types of Afghan resistance groups. So particularly those groups um, that framed their aspirations in terms of political Islam rather than ethno-nationalism. But I guess it's kind of this, the, the ways that, the the war of the 1980s really effectively spreads a lot of Afghanistan's population across the border between Afghan like across Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, and the ways that that then intersects with local religious and political trends in Pakistan is though that certainly plays a really important role. In, and in you wrote the, uh, the, the defiant border, the Afghan-Pakistan borderlands era of decolonialization, 1936-1965. So you're familiar with that. What about you? You keep on bringing up the issue of state building and modernization. Are the Taliban, are they modernizers? Do they want to build a state in Afghanistan? Is that part of their way of thinking about the world? 
Yes, I think the Taliban does want to build a state in Afghanistan, but I would say it's not it's potentially not a state that I guess functions in the same kind of forms or terms that I guess we're more comfortable talking about in the West. Um, but I think one of the things that's interesting is I guess looking at the Taliban's history, particularly, you know, some of the infrastructures that set up in the 1990s is that it was very modern in its aspirations and in terms of some of the institutions that it established. And by modern, I mean, in terms of the ways it, like in terms of the Taliban wanting to assert influence, not in terms of the ways that it perhaps thinks about things like human rights or women's rights, um, which, which I think, you know, is obviously a real point of contention now in the international arena. But yes, I think, you know, I think the Taliban is intent on building a building a state, um, even if I think even if its ideas of what a state should be and how it should function are, are potentially quite controversial. Elizabeth, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had another scholar of the region, Nelly, Nelly Lahoud, on the show um, talking about bin Laden. Uh, she mm. wrote the bin Laden papers, which also focuses on those borderlands between Pakistan and Afghanistan, but focuses on, on bin Laden and what she found after the bin Laden raid. Um, to what extent, uh, and this of course raises the second war, which everybody is familiar with, not the Russian invasion, but the American invasion of Afghanistan after 9-11. Uh, we've done lots of shows on that. We did one, for example, with one American soldier, uh, uh, Frank Gusbigio, The Wolves of Helmand. To what extent are the Russian and American invasions of, 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 Russia, uh, of Afghanistan, uh, are they in any way similar or are they so different in so many different ways that they're not comparable? No, I think they are comparable in some ways. I, I really hesitate to draw direct comparisons, but I think there are some comparisons we can make. But also I think perhaps even more importantly that the two invasions are very, very interlinked. Right. It's a, you know, one of the things we always have to remember is that the U.S. was involved in Afghanistan in the 1980s, particularly by providing covert aid um, to the Afghan resistance to fight to fight the PDPA and their Soviet allies. But one of the things that's really important and one of the things I point out in my book that I think has real long term significance is that the United States in the 1970s and 1980s expressed very limited understanding of local Afghan political or social dynamics. Um, and Afghan, you know, or excuse me, American policymakers in the Carter and Reagan administrations, you know, in the State Department, in the CIA, in the NSC, you know, relied on a very sort of limited vocabulary for describing what was going on in Afghanistan and for describing kind of different Afghan interest groups. So you see American officials time and again talking about Afghanistan as being tribal and as being backwards. Um, and also, I think really importantly, you know, they, American officials were very dismissive of Islam as a potentially, um, you know, potentially significant political force in the region. And so I think those sort of limitations and the ways that American officials understood and framed what was going on in Afghanistan in the 1970s and 80s certainly shaped policy, U.S. policy during that time period, but it also very clearly shaped U.S. policy after 2001. Um, and I, so I think that's a really important sort of kind of corollary and, and you know, correlation between the two uh, invasions. Elizabeth, you, one reads, and I'm sure you've done a lot of research in this area, one reads of Americans shipping in huge amounts of cash um, and clearly not having a very coherent idea of how to distribute that cash. To, to what extent 
did the Americans miss an opportunity in Afghanistan continue to, to continue the state building initiative that you, you've spent a lot of your scholarly career focusing on? Should the Americans have been focused exclusively on state building in Afghanistan versus perhaps fighting the Taliban or supporting one faction or another? Or perhaps were they in the business of state building or... I mean, I think for, yeah, for better or worse, and kind of despite, I suppose, the debates about kind of what was taking place, I mean, I think it's clear that the U.S. was certainly involved in state building in Afghanistan after 2001. Um, you know, the forms that it took, and I guess the level of kind of U.S., I guess, interest in state building obviously, obviously wavered quite significantly over time. But, I, you know, I think there are, you know, and there have been some really interesting books that are coming out about the U.S. war in Afghanistan that I think raise really important questions, I think particularly about certain moments in the in the war, you know, I guess, you know, up, you know, around 2004 and kind of before and after in which, you know, with, in which a really wide array of Afghan, you know, leaders and interest groups were obviously willing to work in different, like different forms of coalition. And we obviously saw a lot of those coalitions break down over time. But I guess, you know, so questions that I have are kind of, well, what, you know, what created the opportunity for those coalitions to emerge? Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, if we're thinking about alternative histories, like could, could there have been instances where those could have persisted, I suppose, in more productive ways? That being said, I think one of the issues that we're seeing right now with a lot of the sort of postmortems of the U.S. war in Afghanistan is that study, a lot of these studies are, are focusing entire, almost entirely on U.S. documents and perspectives. So I think it's a really hard question to answer without without actually you know bringing in different Afghan perspectives on the conflict as well. A couple of quick questions, Elizabeth. Um, final questions. Uh, Americans, of course, are also very familiar with the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan uh, under Joe Biden. Quite a catastrophe, certainly a PR disaster. To what extent was the American bloody nose in? Uh, in Afghanistan, equivalent to the to the to the Soviet one, are, are there equivalents there, or again, are they quite different experiences? I think there are some really interesting comparisons we can make, and I think, especially if we take a slightly broader broader view of, I guess, both the Soviet and the American withdrawals. So, I think one of the things that's really important to remember is that the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan, as well as the American withdrawal last year took place against the backdrop of, of kind of broader international conversations um, and, and sets of negotiations about what Afghanistan's um, political future potentially should look like. So if we look, for example, at the, at the UN-led negotiations that ultimately resulted in the Geneva Accords in um, 1988, so the, the UN-led uh, accords that ultimately resulted in the Soviet withdrawal, I think one of the things that's really important is that those UN-led negotiations involved the United States, the Soviet Union, the government of Pakistan, and the PDPA. So there was no space at the bargaining table then for any of the Afghan resistance groups. So it was a very uneven form of negotiation that obviously could not actually come to any sort of real concrete conclusion about what Afghanistan's political future could look like, or you know, come up with any real solutions for how to end the civil war. If we look at the Doha peace talks that took place you know, in the 21st century, again, Afghan representation was very uneven because the Taliban was not willing to negotiate directly with the government of Afghanistan. So again, those peace negotiations were predominantly between the Taliban and the United States and did not involve the Afghan government. 
um, in any particularly meaningful way. So I think the unevenness of those negotiations is a really important point for thinking about kind of the governments or lack of governments that subsequently emerged both after the Soviet withdrawal and the American one. Let's end, Elizabeth, with trying to plot out some sort of future for Afghanistan. Clearly, it's a country which has become a metaphor for tragedy, one kind of war and political failure or another. What's the the best path forward in your view? How can, I mean, what, what is the current, a couple of questions there, what is the current, and then you're a, you're, you're a theorist of state building. Is there an Afghan state right now? I mean, can it collect taxes? Does it have a coherent functioning bureaucracy? Uh, and secondly, what's the, the best way forward here? I mean, can Afghanistan enter the modern world, and I use that term carefully, modernity, with the Taliban as its government? I mean, I'm not going to offer offer a very satisfactory answer to either of those questions, because as I always say, I'm a historian, I study the past, and I don't, I really try to avoid making predictions about the future, because that is not at all what I'm trained to do. But I think a couple of the things that we think about it, right? I mean, you you must imagine the future. I mean, historians are always thinking about the future. That's what they do, isn't it? Not necessarily. Um, So I, I really don't feel qualified to to kind of make predictions about Afghanistan's future. But I think these questions about the, the multiple humanitarian crises that are emerging in Afghanistan are real, are a real source of concern, not only in terms of, as you mentioned, the earthquake, you know, there are a lot of questions about famine in Afghanistan, as well as questions too about a Taliban pursuit of what is effectively a genocide against local communities such as the Hazara. So, I mean, I think there are real questions about the different abuses that are taking place and I think there are real questions as well that about what, what if anything, the international community is going to do about that. I mean, I think it's clear that the UN is at least attempting to continue to take a real interest in what's going on in Afghanistan, but it's obviously also really lacking in funding. Um, and certainly the United States position continues to be quite middling. So I think it's really hard to say what's going to happen, but there are a lot of different crises taking place all at once, which are obviously really deeply concerning. Well, let me revise the question. The current government in Afghanistan is the Taliban. Um, if the international community supported the Taliban financially, morally, politically, militarily, are the Taliban capable of building a modern state in, in, in Afghanistan in the same way, perhaps, as the Iranian state, for better or worse, continues to exist. It may not be ideal. It probably sends shivers through many of our spines, but it's certainly a more functioning state um, than the Afghan one. I mean, I think it's it's possible, but again, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say because I just I just don't know. You don't know about the Taliban? I mean, I don't what, I don't know about the future. I mean, I mean, I like I said, I this book is like my well, research the, the present, and what I write about is very much the Taliban. The I mean, you know about the Taliban government today. Is it capable of building a functioning state in Afghanistan? I, I mean, it certainly it certainly thinks it is, and I mean, I you know, and it certainly I think is moving forward and doing so at least in some provinces. I guess the extent to which they're going to be able to do so nationally is, I think, a real big question. Interesting questions from Elizabeth Leek, the author of Afghan Crucible, the Soviet invasion and making of modern Afghanistan, an expert in this region, a historian. Congratulations on the new book, Elizabeth. What else are you reading these days? Anything interesting? 
Um, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm in the midst of several different histories, um, history books at the moment. So um, I'm, I'm currently, currently in the middle of Jeremy Friedman's Right for Revolution, Building Socialism in the Third World, which is a really interesting read, kind of globalizing, I guess, a lot of the stories that I'm, that I'm interested in, in terms of Afghanistan. Um, and I've also really been enjoying reading Jessica Nemecal's book called Unsettling Utopia, The Making and Unmaking of French India. So looking at broader histories of South Asian decolonization, and I guess other areas of the subcontinent that haven't received as much historical scrutiny, sort of like Afghanistan.